Right, good morning again. My name is Sean, the lead pastor here. We'll be continuing this morning in our uh, overarching series we're calling Strong Old Testament Women. We went through the book of Esther, and now we're in the book of Ruth. This morning we'll be in Ruth chapter 1, verses 19 through 22. It's printed for you in the ESV translation on page 10. And there's also a kid's version we provided there. We'll be pro, um, I'll be referring to both of those throughout uh, the sermons. You want to have that handy or you pull up your own smartphones and have the app open, whatever you prefer. So this morning we're going to be looking at what I'm calling bitter medicine. And to kind of get us into that mindset, I want to remind you of a very common item that many of us have experienced vanilla extract man sugar cookies right I mean you just they, they just make a sugar cookie when you just add that vanilla extract in there right or an all-natural cream soda is flavored with real vanilla extract it's so good or one of the things you can do kids if you don't know this how easy this is you can take some room temperature butter you can take like a heap mound of powdered sugar a little bit of cream and some vanilla extract and whip that up and make frosting. It's like that easy. You can put it on anything or just eat it with a spoon. It's amazing. I see, I, I earned this. So it's awesome. Now, adults and kids present, have you ever smelled vanilla extract? Open the bottle and smelled it. Go ahead. I want to see who's actually smell. Yes. It's so good, right? Now, like me, have you ever made the next logical move and been in the regret? Have you ever tasted vanilla extract, right? You might want to own that one. It's so bad. It is so bitter. It like turns your mouth inside out. It is so bitter. It is so sour, not sour, but just like, oh, it's so shockingly bitter. And that is what this passage is actually about today, a life that is bitter tasting. Not bitter like we say in English where we mean resentful if we talk about our life. This is actual like physical description, bitter tasting. Naomi's life has become bitter tasting at this point because of what God has put her through. Okay, so for those of you who haven't been here, who's this Naomi person? We'll be talking about. So Naomi and her family, at the very beginning of the book of Ruth, they left God's promised land when he sent a famine. Even though God said, if I send a famine, it's like a check engine light on your dash. You need to pull over and check something's wrong. Instead, they're like, nope, we're ignoring that and just gonna get a new car. So they left God's promised land and they went to Moab, even though you don't go to Moab. They went there, her life literally fell apart. This, path, this shortcut became a path of death. And after six verses, she realizes she has made a mistake. Her life's in shambles and she repents of Moab and she goes back. We saw last week her two daughters-in-law, who have no husbands at this point because they're dead, follow her, and in an act of mercy, she sends them back. Go back to your people. Go back to your land. My God is good to other people. He's not good to me, and if you're part of me, he's not going to be good to you either. There's no goodness left in God for me. You need to go back. One of her daughters-in-law says, okay. The other daughter-in-law, Ruth, is like, no. She sees this strong, struggling faith in a difficult life, but a true faith, and she says, I want that. And so we saw that Ruth confesses faith in the God of Israel. She latches on to Naomi. She latches on to Naomi's people, and she returns with her. And so they go back to Bethlehem. They walk the 50 miles back west across the top of the Dead Sea, and they get to Bethlehem, and that's where our text picks up today with Ruth chapter 1, verses 19 through 22. And, and as is our tradition, if you are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? 
So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. <clears throat> this is God's word. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have chosen to condescend to us and reveal yourself to us in speech that we might know your truth, that we might know your holiness and your kindness, that we might know your wrath and your mercy, and that most of all, we might know your gospel in your son, Jesus. Oh, Lord, by your spirit, would you open this text up to us that we might know you and know ourselves. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Please be seated. So Naomi admits she has been living in idolatry and now she's turning away from that and it's not an easy process for her. And that gets us to our theme for today, which is this. God's bitter pill purges our idolatry. So I want to jump in by looking at the bitterness of idolatry. So Naomi and Ruth, they make it to Bethlehem. They show up and the whole town rejoices. In the original, it's much more an exclamation of joy. It's like, Naomi's back. Here's how we put it for the kids. Boys and girls, let's look at your verse 19. You can follow along with me. It says this. It says, Naomi and Ruth walked to Bethlehem. And when they got there, the whole town was excited. The women kept saying, Naomi's back. See, it's a small town. We find out in chapter two, she's actually part of a prominent family. Folk probably knew about the deaths. And all of a sudden, here she is again. Now, Naomi's name literally translates my delight or delightful. And so with that background, let's look together at verse 20, see what she says when she shows up and they're like, hey, Naomi, hey, Naomi. Verse 20 says, she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. So the Old Testament word for bitter is Mara. So she says, don't call me pleasant, don't call me delightful, call me bitter. We might say in English, call me Mara because the Lord has marred me. I don't wanna be this person, this is who I am. Boys and girls, here's how we put it for you in your verse 20. <clears throat> Naomi, whose name means delightful, told them, my name is no longer delightful. Call me bitter, since God's power has made my life bitter. Now, this is very important. When you're reading the Old Testament, especially, to remember this. You ready for this? This is utterly profound. Hebrew is not English. I know, in case you didn't know that, Hebrew is not English. This is not a complaint. When an English speaker says, my life is bitter, it's a metaphor for resentful, right? We, we know that somehow we pick up on that by the time we're five. That is not how it works in Hebrew. That's not how they would say resentful. This is a physical description. Just like you can say to somebody about a situation, man, this stinks. And you don't mean it smells bad, but you don't necessarily automatically mean you're bitter about it either, right? It's kind of, it's unfortunate. It was, it, I don't like it. That's kind of what she says with bitter here. My life is bitter. It's not resentful. She's recognizing the bad in the situation. 
And it's important that we recognize that she's not resentful or we miss what's really going on. Naomi's back home. She's back with people who went through the same famine. The check engine light came on and they did instead of buying a new car and bailing like she did. So they went through it. They understand that God disciplines his people. So Naomi is honest about where she is with these people. She's giving credit to God. My life stinks and God did it. See, last week, if you remember, her life became a testimony for Ruth. Her verbal testimony about my life stinks, God did it, affected Ruth the unbeliever. And here it's the same testimony before believers. My life stinks and God is responsible. Let me ask you something, Christians in the room. Have you allowed yourself the freedom to do that? See, last week we saw the temptation that we often have is to kind of fake this happiness before unbelievers under this misguided idea that we have to like somehow sell God to non-believers. So we got to keep them all polished and shiny, make sure nothing bad is there. So if anything bad's happening, we got to hide that and put this veneer of happy in front of unbelievers, right? Because, you know, that's a bad sales pitch. Like, yeah, my life stinks and God did it. You want to join? That's not, right? That doesn't work. Here we see kind of the converse of that. Naomi is now before other believers and she's not gonna fake it there either. And if we're candid, we feel pressure sometimes to fake it before believers, don't we? Yeah, see it's, it's called moralism versus the gospel. Moralism is this idea that you know, Christianity is about making good behavior, making good moral people, and so it's really about performance, and it's really about your appearances, and making sure you have everything put together in a nice good life, and if you're not performing well, you're not doing well, so you're always presenting this veneer of, I'm performing very well. You fake being happy around other Christians because you feel this pressure to, and then you know that, oh, they're, they're gonna, they might not accept me if my life is actually bad, if I show them my real struggles. But see, the gospel is just the opposite. The gospel is based not on our performance, the gospel is based on the performance of Jesus, who earned our place in God's family, who puts his approval on us, and so we can be real about the struggles and difficulties. Say, yes, my life stinks, and God did it, but I'm forgiven, I'm part of the family, and he gives me grace to get through it. You can be honest about these struggles. If you can't be honest about your struggles, your doubts, your difficulties, your challenges in your Christian life, I would challenge you to look in your heart. Maybe you are trying to perform rather than resting in the performance of Jesus. And if you do give yourself permission to vent faithfully, we'll call it, do you have a place to do that with other believers here? I hope you can find one here. And if not, come talk to me. We'll make one together. See, Naomi comes and she says, my life is bitter tasting. I messed up and I tasted the vanilla extract and it's bad. She's not resentful. The emphasis is on God's power here, not her emotional response to it. Her God is large and in charge in the good and the bad, and she is owning that. She uses the term almighty here. There's no slides. She uses the term almighty here at the end of verse 20 and at the end of verse 21. Notice that. She says, the almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. And then she says again, the almighty has brought calamity upon me. 
in the context of her time and her community, that's a confession of faith. Moving from saying El, which is God, to the, the special personal name of God, which is Lord, capital L-O-R-D, we saw last week. Now she's moving to another name of God, which is called Shaddai. You might remember if you were around Christian culture in the, in the mid-90s that the PCA ruling elder Michael Card came out with that song, El Shaddai. The whole thing was sung in Hebrew. Yeah, that's El Shaddai is God Almighty. And so she says here, Shaddai, the name for God's power. He has done this. The all-powerful God has done this to me. See, this is what's called a lament. We don't do this well in our culture. A lament is basically, this is terrible, and I'm going to complain to the only one who can fix it because he's the one who caused it. That's lament. She's lamenting right now. She's proclaiming a negative truth. God has made my life a bitter pill. But she recognizes that bitter pill purged her of her idolatry, her idolatry of husband, of kids being the way she got fulfillment and joy, not in a relationship with her covenant father, God. And note the results of this real candor, this thick faith, I like to think about it as. Tells us the very beginning of this passage in verse 19, the whole town was stirred. There's religious overtones to that word. Revival broke out in Bethlehem, we could almost say. I love that. I mean, look at the raw honesty here of Naomi's confession. I mean, this is real faith. Look with me at verse 21 together. What does she say? She says, the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. Literally, we could translate that, Shaddai has broken me. Here's how he put it for the kids. We said, he used his power to break me. God broke her through suffering and difficulty. See, it's not bitterness, it's not resentment, and neither is broken bitterness or resentment. I mean, brokenness was such a concept in Christian subculture in the early 2000s. I mean, if you were around, everybody talked about, you know, you just gotta serve from like your brokenness. And you'd be like, I don't know what that means, and you don't either, and you know you don't know what it means, right? But you kinda, you kinda know how it felt, right? It was, it, was, it was us, we were starting on that path of our culture of it doesn't have to be rational, it just has to be emotive, and brokenness was like the bridge that got us there because we had no idea what it meant, but we all knew how it felt, and so we went there. And here's Naomi, like way before any of us, saying, yes, I'm serving out of my brokenness because God himself and his power has broken me. You see, God loves his people enough that he won't let us be happy in idolatry. He won't let us be happy in our fake loves. He won't let us be happy in a superficial faith. See, our ultimate happiness is in him, but we so often get distracted by other things, don't we? And it's often from those other things he has to break us. Let me ask you something, Christians here. Does it seem as if your life is being thwarted? Like troubles just keep coming? It's not always the case, and no one gets the right to say that from Scripture, but it is often the case, as we see here with Naomi, that perhaps those difficulties are from the Lord who's trying to get you to repent of path A and get you on path B, which is why he keeps thwarting you. If so, own that. 
Lament about your troubles. Repent and move forward. That's living under the care of a heavenly father. And just to make this real practical, I mean, I have a 20-year-old daughter who's not, not living with us anymore. She, she's still up in New England, in, in Boston. And so, I mean, I, I, we have to do this. If your children, parents, grandparents, if you, you see your grandchildren or children going down a difficult path and their life is gonna be hard and you just don't think it's the best path, you need to go against your instincts and, and, and the instincts to pray. Oh, man, Lord, I hope you keep them safe. I hope you keep them happy. I hope you... Don't pray that they'll be happy. If they're, on a, if, you, if they're on the wrong path, you need to pray that they'll be miserable. I'm serious, you need to pray, God, would you bring your sovereign almighty power, keep them safe, but would you make them miserable? Would you make this so bitter that they turn to something that's sweet? It sounds cruel, right? See, I can say God does that to us, You're like, oh yeah, mm, and you give me the Presbyterian grunt, mm, mm. But now I say, you do this to your kids. You're like, well, hold on there a minute, Hoss, right? But that's what we see in this text. God the Father comes and says, I'm not gonna let you be happy on this path. So I'm gonna pour some bitterness on. It works because we're under the care of a heavenly Father. Or perhaps all this is wrong and we're just evolutionary accidents living on an incidental planet and there's nothing in our difficulties but difficulties. There's no one to whom to vent. There's no greater purpose for our sufferings or for our hardships in a universe of chance. But what a testimony we can be if in our struggles we don't try to put on a positive spin, we don't try to make ourselves or God look good, but if we biblically and faithfully lament, my life stinks and my God did it, but he's still my God. That, that could stir our community like it did in Bethlehem. That can mess people up because that's a real substantial faith that people are looking for something of substance. So we've seen the bitterness of idolatry now Naomi confesses the emptiness of her idolatry. Look with me at the very last part of verse 21. She says, I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Now remember I told you last week, whenever in scripture you see capital L-O-R-D, that's a specific name. When God appeared to Moses in the burning bush, he told Moses his name. He gave him four consonants. We don't know the vowels. People have made up vowels, and there's two really famous names that people like to use for this. We don't know if those are accurate. We may be calling God a different name, so I don't use them. I'm not gonna tell you what they are because you probably love those names and you'll get mad at me. But anyway, that's a proper name when you see that. It's like he says, my name's Bob, okay? Capital L-O-R-D is a proper name. So she is saying this is the covenant-specific personal name. He has brought me back empty. It's a confession of faith. It's a confession of understanding. She says she left full, which is interesting, right? Because she left because they were hungry. It was a famine. They were about to starve. What, what, what does she mean, full? Well, she had what was truly important to her. She had a husband. She had sons. She had hope and a family continuing. And he, she said, no, we're not gonna stay here in God's covenant land of promise. We're gonna go where my idol, my family can thrive because that's where my hope and trust is. I went away full of that. She was fulfilled in that hope of a family. 
She took this good thing that God had given her and made it an ultimate thing. That's idolatry. And she's tasted the bitterness of it, and now she's recognizing the emptiness of it. And I love, again, her confession of the faith she has in God. Notice she says, um, God brought her back. Literally, it's he, it's he caused me to return using emptiness. That's how we could translate that. Notice she doesn't say, well, my husband, Elimelech, he made me go. No, she says, I left. He brought me back through emptiness. Boys and girls, let's look at your verse 21. Here's how we put it for the kids. It says this, says, I walked away from the Lord happy, but he used sadness to bring me back. I don't like being sad. Do you like being sad? Naomi didn't like being sad either. She's not saying she was happy about being sad, but she's saying the Lord used this to bring me back. You know, a shallow, superficial faith, a Christian hobby, really has no categories for what we're talking about right here. I mean, Naomi's not happy. She has no joy. She is at rock bottom. She is broken. And rather than cursing God and bailing in her brokenness, she's beginning to understand why God did it. It's an amazing depth of faith. This, this dark path in her life, the, the death of her security and hope in a family, they're not punishment. She's not seeing it as punishment. They were God emptying her of her false hopes, her false fullness so he could fill her with something even better. She's not happy, but she believes God knows what he's doing. That's ultimately the doctrine of providence that we have, that we hold on to great. We believe in God's providence, right? Because we're good Presbyterians, we know God's providence is his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. And we don't know what that means. But anyway, right? But God's providence doesn't mean that we understand what he's doing. God's providence, when you get right down to it, means we believe he knows what he's doing. And we let him drive, right? I'm just gonna sit back and let him drive. See, she's living under the power of a God who we talked about last week is not tame, right? He's not a safe lion. He keeps breaking out of the cages we put him in. And he very often will not do what we tell him to do. See, without the emptying of her sadness, without her losses, she never would have repented from Moab and come back. She gets that now. God is working. And so he caused Naomi to repent in verse 6. He caused Ruth to confess faith in verse 16 and 17. Now, in case you think I'm, I'm, I'm getting a little... Um, Loose with the text here. Maybe I'm taking liberties. I want to kind of dig in on verse 22 real quick. I don't think there's a slide. I just want to dig in on verse 22. Remember last week we talked about that Hebrew, or two weeks ago, that Hebrew word shuv, right? It means to turn, to return, or repent. It's all over this chapter. It's used like 19 times in chapter one, and it's used twice in verse 22. So Naomi, at the beginning of verse 22, she geographically shuvs, returns to Bethlehem. But the second time the word is used, it's used about Ruth. And translations differ on this because it's open to interpretation, but just, I just wanna ask logically, has Ruth ever been to Bethlehem? How, how does one return to somewhere one has never been? Right? So 
the ESV kind of like, oops, whiff, when it translates, and Ruth returned to Bethlehem with her. No, this should be repented. The text is making it clear, Naomi geographically returned to where she had come from. Ruth has never been there, but she confesses faith in verse 16 and 17, and, here, and then here, four or five verses later, she repents from Moab. Notice how it phrases that. Just like Naomi repented in verse six. And so the chapter ends then with this almost throwaway phrase at the end of verse 22, the beginning of the barley harvest, which is right now, April through May. The chapter begins, if you remember, with the famine and it ends with them in harvest. That's hope. And they just happen to get there when there'll be like, you know, work and food available for a completely destitute couple of women because God's providence is he knows what he's doing, right? And then I love this even more hope is the blatant fact that Naomi is wrong. She didn't come back empty. She's got Ruth. Can you imagine being Ruth standing there hearing your mother-in-law go, I came back with nothing. And she's like, I'm like standing right here. (laughs) See, Bethlehem has hope. Ruth has hope. Maybe there's hope for Naomi and maybe there's hope for us too. And so we've moved from the bitterness of idolatry to the emptiness of idolatry. We're gonna wrap up with the sweet fullness of the gospel. When Naomi tells them, call me Mara, in verse 20, She's describing herself, but she's also putting kind of a stake in the ground to a story. It's, it's a proper name in their history. So God brings his people out of the Exodus. He rescues them. He takes them through the Red Sea. You know, he splits the Red Sea. You know, Charlton Heston holds up his hands and the wind comes and splits it and they walk through. They get to the other side. They have this raucous, is the only way to describe it, raucous religious service. They, they sing this amazing, beautiful psalm. They're rejoicing together and they start walking. And three days later, all of a sudden Moses starts hearing over and over again, I want a drink of water. When am I gonna stop? I'm thirsty. And so they find this spring water. They get so excited, but the water's bitter. They can't drink it. And so they name the place Mara Bitter, and it becomes a story in their history. Now, again, in this day and age of like you turn on the tap and there's water there, Okay, bitter water, what is that? So I grew up in Wyoming and we had to take Wyoming history like every year. And one of the things about Wyoming is its history is basically about livestock. You had huge, I mean, like the size of, size of Rhode Island, huge ranches all over Wyoming when it was territory with these massive cattle drives. And you also had these massive sheep uh, herders who had their huge flocks and they were actually constantly in open warfare. Um, you eat more beef than, than lamb because the beef people won, by the way. You know, it, it, open warfare, lots of blood everywhere. But the thing about Wyoming is it has these huge, often areas of alkali flats. And when the water would come, the rain would come, there'd be these pools, there are these alkali flats, and they're poison. It's bitter water is what they called them. And here's the funny thing about it. Humans and sheep will drink that water and die. They can't tell it's poison. Cattle and horses won't. And so what the cattle people would do, they would purposely leave paths to the bitter waters open so the sheep people would take their sheep there and die. And then, you know, if you ever notice in the old westerns, the ones that are accurate, when the cowboys are really thirsty and they're lost, they get off and they let their horse lead them because their horse will lead them to sweet water because there's something about the alkali they can smell. Okay, anyway, all that was for free. All that to say is bitter water is a thing. And this is kind of what it was like. So they get there, there's bitter water and 
The people are like, Moses, I want to drink. It's dirty. And so what Moses prays to God, help. I've got like, you know, according to the liberals, 100,000 people. According to the conservatives, like half a million people behind me, probably in between. They're thirsty. What am I going to do, God? Help. And so God, he doesn't strike him down. He doesn't come down angry. Be like, I just split the Red Sea like 72 hours ago. You kidding me? You're complaining already? He comes down in mercy. He shows them how to make it sweet. It basically, just toss in this log and believe. And they toss in the log. And apparently they believe because the water became sweet. So Mara becomes this thing where an area, a thing that is full of death by God's grace becomes saturated with life. And it gives you life too. And it becomes this metaphor in their history. So when she says that proper name, she's saying, my life is saturated with death. But I'm holding on to the hope that the God of Mara is going to make it sweet and bring life. Because God makes bitter things, the things of death, sweet and alive by grace, is what they would say Mara really means. The original readers would catch that. She claims to be that place. Because that's what God does. He takes bitter, thankless grumblers like me, and he gives us grace. He loves sinners, and he shows them grace. Because God ultimately fulfilled this picture of Mara through Jesus Christ, who himself became human and entered into the bitter world of sin and death. He took on his share of sufferings, his share of trials, his shares of disappointment. And then came that last night where Jesus himself with very purposeful vocabulary drawing on Mara, like, I don't want to drink this bitter cup of wrath. Let it pass from me. But so we wouldn't have to drink it. What did our beautiful Savior do? He made that bitter cup sweet by drinking it himself, by absorbing that death so that we could have life that's what God does in his grace. Now, Naomi, of course, doesn't understand all of that, but she's beginning to understand that God will make sweet her bitter life. I can't give you easy answers if you're going through difficulties and trials, but I can point you to Jesus who's been there. He can take you to the very throne of God who can make sense of your struggles who understands what's happening in your life and he can heal your bitter life if you'll let him. And even when we don't believe him, even when we don't believe that, even when the check engine light comes on and we run, even when we fail him and we get a bitter life, we don't have to get resentful because in Jesus we have one for whom our very sins and failures actually draw him closer to us. It is his joy to come to us in our sins and failures and make our bitter life sweet, make our life saturated with death, full of life because he himself is life. Even when we disappoint ourselves as Christians, Jesus doesn't push us away. He draws us near in his gentle and lowly heart. If you want that, if you want that, Simply just cast off everything you've called Christianity, everything you think religion and performance is, and all you do is you simply place your faith and trust in Jesus as the resurrected Lord. And he will turn your bitter life full of death, sweet and saturated with life.
But don't wait. Do, do it now. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we admit that when our life path doesn't follow our plan, that we jump to resentfulness so quickly, even those of us, especially those of us who know you. Lord, we're sorry. Lord, we believe that in your grace, you can make our bitter lives sweet like you've done with Naomi here. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to trust you as, as you take us through a path of difficulty to refine us and make us more like Jesus. And Lord, for those here listening today who don't, who don't know you, we pray that you would be true to your promise that as Jesus Christ is lifted up, he would draw all people to himself. Would you do that even now? Would you draw your family close and embrace them with your life? I pray all this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.